tonight we have the background of the rain falling. Falling is, uh, yeah, falling is an understatement. <laughs> Drenching, maybe. Okay, so let's cultivate our motivation. So the rain is wet and walking here in the rain may be inconvenient. We may not like the rain. We not, may not like having wet shoes, whatever. But the fact is that the rain is falling and these are the circumstances. So we have a choice there. We can either rail against the rain and get mad at it and say it shouldn't fall or if it falls it shouldn't be wet but our anger is totally useless because it doesn't change anything and so it is with many situations in life they are the way they are, and getting upset doesn't change much. Now we may think, but if I get upset, then maybe somebody will listen to me. Maybe, but maybe not. So sometimes we just have to accept the situation, do the best we can, and not uh, cause more troubles for ourselves by wanting things to be different than they are. Of course, if we can change something, we can try and do that. If we can't change it, best to accept it. But neither one of those responses require anger or despair or anything like that. So my little uh, saying that sentient beings do what sentient beings do, I think can be very helpful here because we may say, well, sentient beings should do something different and they can do something different. But sometimes it's difficult for them to change or they can't do it on a dime. Are there many other factors involved in the situation that we don't understand? And so here to respond to those situations with kindness, doing what we can, but not doing what is unnecessary. And so that creates some equilibrium, equilibrium in our mind. And on the basis of that equilibrium, then we can cultivate seeing sentient beings as kind, wanting to repay that kindness, love and compassion. And so let's have a determination to do this and not let our 
anger and upset carry us away and instead turn the mind towards full awakening and have that as our motivation for benefiting sentient beings and listening to teachings tonight. So you all clear about what is real and unreal and true and untrue. Okay. So is the package of tissues real or unreal? It's real in relationship to the world. Is it real? No. Okay. So it's not real, but it is real in relationship to the world. Is it false? Is it a falsity? Yes. Why is it a falsity? Because it doesn't exist the way it appears. How does it appear? Truly existent. Truly existent. How does it exist? Empty of true existence. Yeah, empty of true existence. Okay. So the, uh, the reflection of a face in a mirror. Yeah. Is there a face in the mirror? <laughs> but it looks like there is one. Is that face in the mirror real or unreal? Unreal. Okay. Is the reflection real or unreal? Is it real or unreal? Unreal. What's the definition of the world there as real? In some ways it means simply, well, uh, if it's in the context of real or unreal, it means is it truly existent or not. In the context of real or unreal for the world, it means can it be identified uh, by a common person as something that is deceptive or not. So why do we have this thing of real or unreal and then real or unreal in relationship to the world? Why did that come about? Because in relation to the world, there are also things that are mm, false appearances that don't even exist. Right. But there are things that do exist, but they aren't truly existed or inherently existent, even and, though they appear that way. Right. But they are functioning in the world, there are conventional truths. Yeah. The Svatantrikas, remember, they divide conventional truths into real and unreal. What do the Prasangikas say in response to that? Everything's unreal. You're dividing things into real or unreal is ridiculous because everything is unreal in that it doesn't exist the way it appears. Okay, so that could be one meaning of real there, you know, existing the way it appears. But the Prasangikas say there are things that are real or unreal in relationship to the world. 
okay, because they have to somehow account for the way of the face in the mirror and the the lamp are different, okay? So unreal in relationship to the world is something that just a regular old person can see as a deceptive appearance. And seeing it as deceptive has nothing to do with seeing it as empty of true existence. Because that person, you know, the ordinary person is just Joe Blow. And, you know, and to him it appears truly existent, but he knows that the face in the mirror is deceptive. There's no such face. Does he know that the reflection doesn't inherently exist? No, he doesn't know that. Okay, so there's two levels of deception that we have to discern. Yeah, the level of deception that an ordinary being can discern and the level of deception that an ordinary being cannot discern. Okay. So we have to be aware of that. Okay? The, ref- the reflection is real in relationship to the world, but the face in the mirror is not. Yeah. Okay? So by knowing that the face in the mirror is false, that doesn't mean we've realized the emptiness of inherent existence of the, of the reflection. Okay, this is important. Just realizing that, you know, there's no water in the mirage doesn't mean you've realized the emptiness of the mirage. Does emptiness appear the way it exists? Yes, to the to its principal cognizer it does. So it would be real under that definition? Yes. Yeah. So emptiness is the only real thing. So now we're going to talk about the relationship of the two truths. Okay, so the two truths are contradictory. Okay, what does contradictory mean? No, it doesn't mean mutually exclusive. They're not, contradictory and mutually exclusive are not exactly the same. What does contradictory mean? It means if it's one, it can't be the other. Okay? Mutually exclusive means you're talking about all phenomena, and if it's one, it can't be the other. But just to say two things are contradictory doesn't necessarily mean you're talking about all phenomena. Okay? Yeah, dichotomy. Yeah. Okay. So the two truths um, are they're contradictory if it, if they're and they're also mutually exclusive. So if it's one, it can't be the other. And here we're talking about all phenomena. If they're a veiled truth, they can't be an ultimate truth. If they're an ultimate truth, they can't be a veiled truth. Okay? But they are one nature. Okay? 
So they're mutually exclusive, but they're one nature. So one nature means that if one exists, the other one has to exist. And if one doesn't exist, the other one can't exist. So we say the true truths are one nature, but different isolates, or one nature, but nominally different. So one nature means that one can't exist without the other. So a book, which is a conventional truth, can't exist without the emptiness of the book, which is an ultimate truth. And the emptiness of the book book, cannot exist without the book. So they're one nature, okay? But, yeah, they're different isolates, meaning that they are, they are not the same thing. They are nominally different. They're related in one way or another, but they're not exactly the same, okay? And in fact, they're contradictory, so they're one nature, but they're contradictory. Okay? So one nature doesn't mean that things are exactly the same. It just means that if one exists, the other one must exist. And if one doesn't, the other one doesn't. Okay? So the two truths are not the same. They're contradictory and mutually exclusive. There's nothing that's both a veiled truth and an ultimate truth. The book is not the emptiness of the book. And the emptiness of the book is not the book. The book is a veiled truth. The emptiness of the book is an ultimate truth. Okay? And they're established by two different types of mind. The book is established by a conventional reliable cognizer. The emptiness by the reasoning analyzing the ultimate. Okay, so they're known by two very, very different minds. So in the mind in ordinary beings, a conventional reliable cognizer can know emptiness, but it can't know emptiness directly, non-conceptually. Okay, so the inferential realization of emptiness is a conventional reliable cognizer, okay? But emptiness itself, yeah, being perceived by the principal mind that perceives it, is that, that mind is uh, a probing awareness, analyzing emptiness, or an, an, analyzing the ultimate. And it finds emptiness, but emptiness cannot bear that analysis. Okay, so what does it mean that the uh, probing awareness finds emptiness, or that ultimate analysis finds emptiness? What does that mean? It means when you're analyzing the the gong or the person. We talked about this last week. You didn't read your notes. <laughs> it means that when you're analyzing the gong on the person, you don't find the gong or the person. Instead, you find the emptiness of the gong and the person. Right. 
Yeah. So when you're searching for the ultimate existence of the gong or the person, you find emptiness. Now, when we're looking for the ultimate nature of the, of the person, the person cannot bear ultimate analysis. What does that mean? That the person can't bear ultimate analysis. But you can't find the person on, um, with a probing awareness. You what? You can't find the person under when you're using a probing awareness. No. If the person can't bear analysis, yeah, it means that when you're looking for the, you know, the ultimate nature of the person, you can't find it. The person is not its ultimate nature. Okay? So something can't bear analysis means you're looking for exactly what it is. You know, and with, an, with an ultimate analysis, and you can't find the object. Okay, why can't you find it? Because it's empty. What do you find when you're searching for the ultimate nature of the person? You find the emptiness of the person. Okay. So the person is not found by ultimate analysis. Yeah. Ultimate analysis finds emptiness. I, I really ask you to please study this in between. Otherwise, uh, my teaching every week, if you don't remember what you heard last week, then this week you're not going to understand what you hear. So when we say that the book and its emptiness are one nature but different isolates, the, an isolate of an object refers to just that object, something that appears the same as that object to a conceptual mind and that has the same name as that object. Okay, so it's that object in both term and meaning. Okay, so book is the isolate of book, but blue book is not the isolate of book because a blue book is nominally different than a book. Okay, so I, you know, when we say things are, are different isolates, there means they're not exactly the same and they're at least nominally different. Okay. So, um, yeah, so when we say in the Heart Sutra, form is empty, okay, that sounds okay, form is empty. Emptiness is form. Is emptiness form? No. Why not? Why is emptiness not form? Why is emptiness not form? I just explained it. One is a conventional truth. One is an ultimate truth. Right? If something's a conventional truth, it can't be an ultimate truth. If it's an ultimate truth, it can't be a conventional truth. Why aren't emptiness and form the same thing? Repeat what I just said. 
okay, one is a conventional truth and one is an ultimate truth. Okay. But is form empty? Yes. yes. Is form emptiness? No. no. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the form and form's emptiness are one nature, but they're different isolates. Okay, so form and its emptiness are not the same, but form can't exist without the emptiness of form, and emptiness of form can't exist without form. But we, we can say form is empty. empty. Emptiness is a quality of form, but emptiness is not form. Okay, so we have we have to think clearly about these things and how they relate. Yeah, is the cup the emptiness of the cup? No. No. Why not? One is a conventional truth; the other is not. Thank you. <laughs> are is is are the cup and the emptiness of the cup one nature? Yes. Are they the same isolate? No. No. Okay. Why not? Why aren't they the same isolate? But one is a conventional Yeah, they're not exactly the same thing. Yeah. They're not the same thing in both in terms of both the name and the meaning. Okay, so the sutra unraveling the thought, which is uh, a very famous sutra, talks about um, four problems, four faults that would occur if a form such as Upeka, or no form, he, is, he isn't a form, is he? Um, the table, okay, the Tibetans always say bumpa, which means like pot or jar or vase. We use tables, okay. So if the table, which is a form, and its emptiness were the same, Okay, then there would be four faults. So one is that when ordinary beings directly perceive a table, they would also be directly perceiving its emptiness. Because if they're the same thing, when you see one, you have to see the other. When you see the table, do you, do you directly perceive its emptiness? No. Okay. Second problem, second fault, is just as the table gives rise to afflictions in the minds of ordinary beings, then the emptiness of the table would also give rise to afflictions when it is cognized. Okay, if they're the same thing, then this table, you know, when I see it, it can give rise to afflictions. Oh, look at this table. The grain is so beautiful. Jim, what was his name? Tally made it. He made it so nicely. I want it. Is this table mine? Yeah, it gives rise to afflictions. Or I could say, ooh, this, why are you giving me such a big table? It's not the right height. I don't like this table. Get rid of it. Also, the table gives rise to afflictions in ordinary beings. Does the emptiness of the table give rise to afflictions? No. No. Okay. But if the table and its emptiness were the same thing, 
if a veiled truth and an ultimate truth were the same thing, then just as the table gives rise to afflictions, its emptiness would give rise to afflictions in the minds of ordinary beings. That would be problematic, wouldn't it? Because then when you perceive emptiness, it wouldn't get rid of your afflictions. Okay. So the third, it would be meaning third problem. Would it it would be meaningless for a yogi to try and realize the emptiness of a table? Because when he perceives the table, he would automatically perceive its emptiness. So why would he even need to meditate on emptiness? And fourth, just as uh, emptiness has color and mass, then, I mean, just as the table has color and mass, then emptiness would have to have color and mass. If they were the same, then they would have the same attributes. Okay? So we're saying that they are one nature, but they are not the same. Okay, so one nature does not mean the same. If I have two identical cups, are they one nature? Why not? Because they each have their own emptiness, they each are their own connection truth. Right. Okay, they're two different things. Are they the same? No, they're not the same either. This is cup A and this is cup B. Okay. Do they look the same? Yes. Are they the same? No. Okay. Then there's, um, if the two truths, so those four were saying why the two truths can't be the same, even though they are the same nature. Okay, so being the same and being the same nature are different. Okay, to be the same, they have to be totally identical in all aspects. Yeah, to be the same nature, they don't have to be totally identical in all aspects. They just ha- it just has to mean that one can't exist without the other. Okay, so two cups are not the same, and they're not the same nature. But the cup and the emptiness of the cup are the same nature, but they're not the same. Okay. If the two truths were different natures, which would mean one could exist without the other one existing, then the wisdom realizing empty- the emptiness of the table could not counteract the superimposition of inherent existence on the table because the table and its emptiness would be totally unrelated. Okay? So if things were totally unrelated, yeah, which means they're, they're different natures, yeah, then one could exist without the other, and so realizing the emptiness of the table wouldn't be at all related to the table. So emptiness, we usually say, counteracts the superimposition super of inherent existence on the object. But here, if the emptiness of the table had nothing to do with the table, that wisdom realizing that emptiness couldn't counteract the superimposition super 
of inherent existence on the table. So realizing emptiness would basically be useless. Okay? Then the second fault would be the emptiness of the table would not be the ultimate reality of the table because they would be unrelated. So just as the table and the tissue are unrelated, and the tissue is not the ultimate nature of the table, and vice versa, then the emptiness of the table would be unrelated to the table and wouldn't be its ultimate nature. Okay, third problem, would the table would not be the basis for the non-affirming negative that is the emptiness of the table. Okay, so the non-affirming negative that is the absence of inherent existence of the table would not be the ultimate nature of the table. Again, because if they're totally unrelated, the the uh, conventional truth could not be the basis of the, you know, of the ultimate truth. It couldn't be the the object that the ultimate truth is a quality of. Yeah. It wouldn't be the basis on which we're we're negating inherent existence. Okay. Then the fourth problem would be the omniscient Buddha could apprehend the table as inherently existent and also apprehend its emptiness because the table and its emptiness would be unrelated like a table and a tissue. Yeah, so again, that doesn't work. Okay, now, in, in terms of the order of realizing the two truths, okay, there's, uh, Nagarjuna says, um, without depending on the conventional truth or veiled truths, the meaning of the ultimate cannot be taught. Okay? which means that we have to use conventional truths to learn about the meaning of the ultimate truth. Okay. And so um, that happens in two kind of unrelated, in interrelated ways. First is to really understand the uh, ultimate truth. Yeah. We have to purify, we have to create merit, we have to have a firm foundation in, you know, the initial, um, the, the paths for the initial level being, the paths for the middling level being, and so on, okay? Um, and so all of that is done by, those are all conventional truths, know, accept true cessations. Yeah, but all those other things that we're learning about in the Dharma are conventional truths. Okay, so we have to learn all these other things to purify the mind and create merit and prepare the mind to realize emptiness. Because one of the things is, if you just delve into you know, if you meet the Dharma and immediately start studying emptiness without any preparation, do you remember when we studied Precious Garland, what Nagarjuna says happens then? Yeah, it, what, what happens is um, that you fall to the extreme of nihilism usually because you don't understand emptiness properly because you don't have a solid foundation. For example, in cause and effect, 
in karma and its effects. Yeah. So all all this other dharma study we do, you know, you practice that, that will lead to this result. You meditate on this, and this is what you'll understand. All of that, you know, talking about cause and effect in the stages of the path, yeah, is giving you a firm foundation in understanding that things exist conventionally and that cause and effect functions. If you just come into the dharma and you start hearing emptiness, emptiness, without a good foundation of understanding cause and effect, then it's very easy to misunderstand emptiness and think it means nothing exists. Okay, And that's a big problem. Why is that a problem? Right. You can do whatever you want because you think karma doesn't function, it doesn't exist. So then you go around creating all sorts of negativities because you think, oh, there's no good, there's no bad. I can do anything I want. Okay, so that's one reason why we have to learn the, the conventional truths to before learning the ultimate truths. The other reason is that, you know, Dependent arising is a reason proving emptiness. And when you, to learn dependent arising, you're thinking about conventional truths. What are their causes and conditions? What are their parts? How do these things relate to each other? Okay. And so by learning all of that, then it, it you know, the more, deeper you understand dependent arising, the more you're going to understand emptiness. If you understand the pervasion, if you don't understand the pervasion, then, like the lower schools, then you're lost. Okay. So what's the arg- What's the syllogism? Yeah. Okay. It's better to say just one or the other. You know, like at the beginning. Instead of having a double, a double subject, the person is empty of inherent existence because of being a dependent arising. What does it mean that the lower schools don't understand the pervasion? Yeah, because they think dependent, they don't understand that if it's dependent arising, it must be emptiness. It must be empty. And instead, they think if it's dependently arising, it must truly exist. Okay, so the, this is the thing with all the lower schools. They, you know, they have a good understanding of dependent arising, and they understand the property. You know that whatever you put as as the subject is a dependent arising, but they don't understand the pervasion that if it's a dependent arising, it's necessarily empty. So, and then there's also some. Interesting things, okay. Um, The computer is a veiled truth, right? Okay. And we know its conventional qualities. However, that doesn't mean that we know the computer as a veiled truth. Or we. it doesn't mean we know the computer is a veiled truth. Or as a veiled truth is actually better, okay? So we know the computer, 
and we know it's conventional qualities. You know, the screen lights up and the, the top is black and sometimes it doesn't work and sometimes it does. And, you know, so we know it's qualities. It's qu- conventional qualities. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we know it as a veiled truth. Why? Because to know something as a veiled truth, first we have to understand its emptiness. Remember? Okay. So knowing something as a veiled truth entails understanding that while it appears inherently existent to our mind, it is not inherently existent. It doesn't exist as it appears. That means that that is what knowing something as a veiled truth means. Okay? So it means knowing it is false. And to full to understand that something's false, that it doesn't exist uh, as it appears, to know it as a veiled truth, then we have to realize emptiness first. Okay. We talked about that before. Remember that? No. No, even an ordinary being, if you have an inferential realization of emptiness, you can see that the object that you analyzed is, when you come out of that meditation, then you can see that the way that object is appearing to you is false. You know? And knowing that it's false, then you know it as a veiled truth. So a veiled truth and illusory appearance... They go together, yeah? If you're having illusory, if you know things through our illusory, then you know them as veiled truths. Okay? So understanding that persons and other phenomena, understanding them as veiled truths and as falsities and as like illusions... All of that helps us to comprehend their emptiness. You know? And similarly, em- knowing their emptiness helps us to understand them as veiled truths, as falsities, as illusory appearances. But those understandings, first you have to see it is empty before you can know it as a veiled truth. Okay. Once you do that, then knowing it as a veiled truth uh, helps you to, to, to really ascertain the emptiness more. Yeah. Remember we, we talked about emptiness dawning as the meaning of, um, of dependent arising and dependent arising dawning as the meaning of emptiness. So it's, it's relating to that. Okay. Now, the, the way the um, words conventional and ultimate are used, you know, it can be really tricky sometimes, okay? So um, we talked before about the meaning of veiled or conventional, you know, or, or what the sense, the Sanskrit term, you know, that it could mean veiled, it could mean conventional, it could mean interdependent. Here, the Sanskrit word uh, paramartha is translated as ultimate. Okay, Artha 
in, in it means object or purpose. Parama means highest or supreme. Okay, so the ultimate is an object of the supreme. So here, emptiness is the ultimate truth because it is the object realized by the supreme consciousness. What's the supreme consciousness? The non-conceptual, pristine wisdom that directly knows the ultimate. Okay. Why is that the supreme consciousness? Because it knows things as they are. <laughs> okay. So emptiness is also the highest object or the supreme object um, because it's the supreme object to be known and because it's the final mode of existence of all phenomena. Then the term non-duality. So there's various meanings for non-duality. Yeah, Some people talk about three, some four. Jeffrey created a list of five. Okay, usually there's just the list of three or four. So non-duality, yeah, can mean uh, different things. We say an Arya's meditative equipoise on emptiness is a non-dual cognizer. Yeah, so what is saying it's non-dual mean? So it's free from four types of elaboration, which are one, the appearances of inherent existence, so an Arya, remember, an Arya is somebody who knows emptiness directly, non-conceptually. Yeah. So an Arya's meditative equipoise on emptiness directly realizes the emptiness of inherent existence. Yeah. So it's not possible for inherent existence to appear to this mind. When you directly realize the emptiness of inherent existence, the opposite inherent existence cannot appear to your mind at that time. Okay? So the absence of the appearance of inherent existence is one meaning of the term non-dual. Okay? The second meaning is that there's no appearance of subject and object. So while an Arya is in that meditative equipoise on emptiness, the subject, which is the mind that realizes emptiness, and the object, which is the emptiness that it's cognizing, are undifferentiable, like water poured into water. So you can't separate them. That doesn't mean they become one. It means that they are fused such that to that mind, you cannot separate, oh, there's, uh, you know, me over here or my consciousness over here, knowing emptiness over there. Yeah. So when you think about it, I don't think we've ever perceived anything non-dually, you know, because whatever we perceive, there's always the sense of a consciousness or a person on this side and the object on the other side, and that they're totally separate. But when we realize emptiness directly, there's not that appearance of separation. 
they become completely undifferentiable. So you have to be clear, when we say things are non-dual or undifferentiable, it doesn't mean they become one. Buddhism talks about, contrary to that joke, remember that joke? You know, a Buddhist went to a baseball game and went to buy a hot dog and said, make me one with everything. Yeah, so no, Buddhists don't talk about about being one with everything. Yeah, there's no talk of one. It's non-dual. It's a negative. You can't differentiate. Because as soon as you say one, two things become one, then you're still talking about two things. And if you say one, then there's always two and three and four. Okay, so we just say non-dual. Okay, so when an Arya is in that meditative equipoise, there's no appearance of me or our consciousness here perceiving an object there. When you really think about it, it's difficult. It's for me anyway. It's difficult to imagine how do you cognize an object without that sense of duality. Yeah. But because the mind at that point is cognizing its own ultimate nature, then the subject and object are like fused. Yeah, like water into water. Yeah. Do we cognize our conventional self as ourself? And then could we say that's non-dual? What do you mean, cognize our conventional self as ourself? Well, if we usually split things into self and other we would experience the self as the self. Yeah. No, but it's still, I am experiencing myself as the self. We're still seeing there's me, the experiencer, and the object out there. And we're just saying they're the same thing. But, you know, in our mind, there's this difference between subject and object. Yeah. Because they aren't the same thing. When Because it isn't, you know, if you say, myself is perceiving myself, what is the self that's perceiving the self? What self is perceiving the self? It feels the same. <laughs> it feels like it's the same thing. But we even see ourselves as a, a separate object. Is that what you're when when, when we're, our, our mind, our conventional mind, when it thinks of anything, there's a perceiver and a perceived. So here we're just labeling the perceiver self and the perceived self. But when you look at it, what are you actually talking about? Yeah? Okay. It's a nice thing to say, but what, do you, what does it actually mean? Okay? Okay. Then the third type of elaboration is uh, that this non-dual realization of emptiness is free of, is the appearance of conventionalities. Okay, so conventionalities here means conventional truths. So to that mind that's directly perceiving emptiness, only the non-affirming negative 
that is the lack of inherent existence, is, that's the only thing that appears to that mind. In other words, emptiness is the only thing that appears to that mind directly realizing emptiness. And it's the only thing cognized by that mind. So there's no appearance of conventional truth at all. So if you're meditating on the emptiness of the person, for example, when you directly perceive the emptiness of the person, there is no appearance of the person to that mind. Emptiness is an ultimate truth. It is not a conventional truth. It exists conventionally. It is not a conventional truth. Okay? So when you're in meditative equipoise on emptiness, there's, you know, maybe you, you're, you know, you're, you're, you started out your meditation analyzing the self or analyzing the table or what analyzing your attachment to see if it inherently exists. When you understand its emptiness, there's no appearance of the conventional truth that, you know, whose ultimate nature you were searching for and analyzing. Okay, there's just the appearance of emptiness, that's it. Okay, and that emptiness appears non-dually, there's no appearance of subject and object. And that emptiness is not appearing inherently existent either. Okay, so those, those are the three when they usually talk about uh, non-duality. If you add a fourth, then you can say that there's no conceptualization. So, you know, that Arya's wisdom directly realizing emptiness is totally free of any conceptualization. So there's no conceptual appearances appearing to it. Yeah. Whereas when you have an inferential realization of emptiness, there is the conceptual appearance of emptiness that is appearing. Okay, so that wisdom directly realizing emptiness, you know, of the mind or of the person, it's not realizing some external object, it's realizing its own nature in a non-dual fashion. Okay, so when we're realizing emptiness directly, there's no idea or thought in the mind that the subject and object are non-dual. So it's not that you're in meditative equipoise and, and on emptiness and then you think, oh, this is the non-dual non realization. There's no appearance of subject and object. Okay? As soon as you have that thought, there's appearance of subject and object, isn't there? And there's, there's conceptualization, and there's uh, inherent existence, and there's conventionalities. Okay, so the actual experience is one of mere negation, Okay, it's the mere emptiness of true existence, nothing more than that. Okay, so there's no kind of uh, reification, no grasping. Okay, so non-duality can be spoken of only from another perspective, another consciousness that knows this meditative equipoise on emptiness is non-dual. So it's another mind that thinks this meditative equipoise on emptiness is non-dual. That meditative 
equipoise on emptiness does not think this is a non-dual consciousness. Okay? Yeah. That mind doesn't say, oh, great, there's nothing else besides emptiness appearing to my mind. Yeah. There's, there's, as soon as you start saying, you know, oh, emptiness, I'm perceiving emptiness, there's no perception of conventionalities, then you're not directly perceiving emptiness. Okay? <laughs> okay, so non-duality uh, is a quality of that experience that is attributed only from an outside perspective. Yeah, meaning that it's another consciousness looking at that cognizer, direct cognizer at emptiness. It's that other consciousness that says all of this. The mind directly realizing emptiness knows only an ultimate truth. It does not have the ability to establish the existence of ultimate truth. Okay? Because it doesn't perceive ultimate truths. And it also, I mean conventional truths, sorry. Yeah, conventional truths. Okay, and when a practitioner arises from that meditative equipoise, and recalls that they realized emptiness. That consciousness, after they've come out of their meditation, is the one which realizes conventionalities, and it's that one that realizes the existence of emptiness. Okay. Okay, now we're just going to... So now we're going to talk about the divisions of emptiness, Okay. Just so you, so you know. So um, in the perfection of wisdom sutras, they speak of different divisions of emptiness. Sometimes two, four, sixteen, eighteen. Okay. So there's a, a nice uh, quotation here. Subhuti, he was one of the great bodhisattvas. Again, the great vehicle of the bodhisattvas is this. Emptiness of the internal emptiness of the external, emptiness of both the internal and external, emptiness of emptiness, emptiness of the vast, emptiness of the ultimate, emptiness of the conditioned, emptiness of the unconditioned, emptiness of what is beyond extremes, emptiness of the beginningless and endless, emptiness of unrejectable, Emptiness of nature, emptiness of all phenomena, emptiness of specific characteristics, emptiness of the unapprehendable, and the emptiness of the nature of non-things. 16. Okay. So, why do they list so many emptinesses if, when you have the direct realization of emptiness, you perceive the emptiness of all things together, undifferentiable. Yeah, when you are in that direct realization of emptiness, it's not like, oh, there's the emptiness of the conditioned, and there's the emptiness of the non-conditioned, and there's the emptiness of the person, and there's the emptiness of the aggregates. It's not that, okay, with with direct realization of emptiness, there's only emptiness. 
Not the emptiness of this and the emptiness of that. Okay. But when we conventionally talk about emptiness, they talk about these different kinds of emptiness. And the reason is because it brings home the point to us again and again that all phenomena are empty. Because we might, you know, in our meditation, meditate uh, that things are dependent arising because they're produced by causes and conditions, and then negate the the emptiness, or negate the inherent existence on, uh, on functional things. Yeah. But hiding in the back of our mind, we may still think, oh, but unconditioned things are inherently existent. So when you divide it into emptiness of the conditioned and emptiness of the unconditioned, it's emphasizing, no, all of them are empty. Okay? So these, all these things, the emptiness of this and the emptiness of that, all those things are the basis of emptiness. Okay? Because remember, emptiness has to exist in dependence upon the veiled truth that is the basis of that emptiness. Okay, so, you know, all these different objects on a conventional level, they have different natures. On the ultimate level, they have the same nature, the na- you know, emptiness. So emptiness of the internal means uh, the emptiness of phenomena that are conjoined with the continuum of sentient beings, such as the six primary consciousnesses and the six uh, sense uh, powers, the six faculties. Okay, um, Emptiness of the external are the five external objects. What are they? Visible form. We did list them in order. Visible form. Sound. 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 Smell. Smell. Taste. Taste. Tangible objects. Okay. So those uh, five are the basis for the emptiness of the external. Emptiness of the internal and external are the coarse sense organs like our eyeball, our ear, and so on, okay? Emptiness of emptiness is emphasizing that emptiness is not uh, something that inherently exists. It's not something independent, unrelated. It also is empty. Emptiness of the vast means, uh, refers to uh, emptiness of everything in the ten directions. The ten directions are the vast. Six, emptiness of the ultimate refers to nirvana. So even nirvana doesn't exist inherently. Seven, the conditioned. So uh, all products, all impermanent things are empty. Eight is emptiness of the unconditioned. So even permanent phenomena such as true cessation or uncompounded space, they're also empty. Nine is emptiness of what is beyond the extremes. So this includes all phenomena because they are all free of the extremes of 
absolutism and nihilism because all of them arise dependently. Then 10, uh, the, the emptiness of the beginningless and endless refers to cyclic existence. So even cyclic existence is empty. Nirvana is empty. Samsara is empty. Okay? And it's called, samsara is called the beginningless and endless um, because uh, for, for each individual sentient being, samsara has no beginning, but it has an end. But we don't uh, say that, you know, all of samsara is going to go out of existence at some time. Um, the emptiness of the unrejectable refers to the emptiness of the Mahayana. Okay, so... Um, while some people may feel comfortable, more comfortable right now, following the fundamental vehicle, all sentient beings will eventually follow the Mahayana and become Buddhas. So it's, un, you, you, it's not possible at the end of the line to reject the, the Mahayana. Emptiness of the ultimate nature is the quality of being empty of true existence that all uh, phenomena have had beginninglessly. So emptiness has never been created. Yeah, It's not a conditioned phenomena. It can come into existence and go out of existence, but it's not created by causes and conditions. Okay, 13 is the emptiness of... Uh, no... Yeah, uh, so when we say the, the ultimate emptiness of the nature, uh, this nature also wasn't created by a creator. Yeah, so don't think emptiness was created by somebody. Then 13 is emptiness of all phenomena, so that includes um, the 18 constituents, the 12 sources, the 5 aggregates, and so on. So the five aggregates include all impermanent phenomena and the 12 sources and the 18 constituents that I spoke about last night. They include all permanent and impermanent phenomena, so both of them. Then 14 is emptiness of specific characteristics. So, um, you know, it subsumes the particular characteristics of all the phenomena from form to omniscience. Because when you list the 108 phenomena, you start with form and you end with omniscience. So whenever you hear the expression from form to omniscience, it means everything. 15 is emptiness of the unapprehendable, meaning uh, the three times. So the past, present, and future yeah, are called the unapprehendable because they can't be apprehended as inherently existent. The present ceases the moment it arrives. The past has already ceased. The future has not yet uh, risen. So, you, you know, we've been talking about this the last few days. You can't apprehend any of them as inherently existent. And then 16 is the emptiness of non-things, so refers to uh, the emptiness of unconditioned phenomena. In other words, permanent things. Now, those are the 16. If you're going to add, if you're going to make 18, 
Then you add emptiness of functioning things, we know what they are, and emptiness of non-functioning things, permanent phenomena. If you count the bases of emptiness as four, then you have the emptiness of functioning things, the emptiness of non-functioning things, the emptiness of self-nature, which is the true nature of all phenomena, and emptiness of other nature, uh, which has three connotations. It means uh, it's the supreme reality, it's the object of supermundane wisdom, and it, or it's nirvana. Okay. So those are the two, the four, and the six, and the 18 emptinesses. I think when it's two, it's probably just functioning things and non-functioning things. Okay. So I think that's enough for the Gongchen Lanrim section on emptiness. Yeah. The, the next part talks about special insight, or, you know, insight, and it's, it's uh, I'll talk just briefly about that. It's, it, you know, it gets complicated. All the, all the different kinds of special insight. Okay, any questions? Yeah. There's a question online from someone wanting to clarify around what you mentioned from the Heart Sutra, saying that it shouldn't be form is emptiness, um, emptiness is form, but it would be better as form is empty, and, um, and empty is form? Okay, the literal translation, the correct translation of the Heart Sutra, it says form is empty, emptiness is form. Okay, when we look at it, form is empty is true, but emptiness is form is not true. It actually means you know, uh, being empty is a quality, or it means emptiness is a quality of form. It doesn't mean emptiness is form. It means emptiness is a quality of form. Okay? So one's an adjective, one's a noun. Yeah, so they're different. Question from last week, if that's uh-huh. okay. Um I've written down that you said it's important that there's a difference between not being found by the wisdom analyzing emptiness and not being able to bear ultimate analysis. Yeah. But when I read my notes, it's almost like they mean the same things. So I'm, I'm just not okay. getting the difference. So something that is able to bear ultimate analysis means that when you're looking for the ultimate nature of that object you would find that object. You would find something that is it. Okay? So if the self were able to bear analysis, when you went to, or the person, the I, were able to bear analysis, when you analyzed to find out exactly what the I was, you would find something that is it. It could bear analysis. Okay, but things cannot bear analysis because when you search for trying to isolate exactly what they are, they evaporate. 
You can't find anything. What you do find is their emptiness. Okay? So that's the difference. But when I... See, that's where I'm getting confused, because I think... It's, so they're not able to bear ultimate analysis, so right. that you can't find what it is under ultimate analysis. Right. And then it's not being found by the wisdom analy- analyzing emptiness. It's like, well... I thought no, no. It, it, we're not saying, yeah. The the conventional object is not found by the wisdom analyzing emptiness, yeah. But that ultimate analysis, that probing awareness, when it analyzes, what does it find at the end of its analysis? Emptiness. So emptiness can bear ultimate analysis. No. When, you, when emptiness is the, the base that you're analyzing and trying to find out exactly what emptiness is, can you identify anything? Can you find anything that is emptiness and draw a line around it? No. So emptiness cannot bear analysis. But when you analyze with that ultimate wisdom you do find the emptiness of emptiness. Okay? If when you analyzed with that ultimate wisdom, looking for what emptiness really was, and you found something, then emptiness would be inherently existent. Okay? So when we're saying something can't bear analysis, it can't bear ultimate analysis, it means that it isn't inherently existent because if it could bear analysis, we could find something that was it at the end of our analysis. You could find the person. You could find the cup. You could find the emptiness. But you, when you analyze with ultimate analysis, you don't find any of those things. That's why those veiled truths cannot bear analysis. But when you, with that ultimate analysis, you are looking for them, what do you find is their emptiness. That makes some sense? Okay, I lost my car keys. Yeah, I'm looking for my car keys. I can't find my car keys anywhere. But what do I find? You know, I find, uh, you know, the flower, some artificial flowers that I threw out 10 years ago. You know, what, see, what is, this is a bad example, but it's saying that you're looking for one thing and not finding it. So it can't bear the analysis of what you're looking for. But you find something else. What are you finding? Emptiness, the emptiness of the object. So those two things are different. Not bearing analysis, yeah, and being found, you know, by, by ultimate analysis are different. Not being found by ultimate analysis means that they're empty. But not being found by analysis not, and and and, and analysis. Is the and same thing. okay, no, maybe let me s- cross that over. 
not being found by ultimate analysis. I'm looking for what is actually the cup. Okay? Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? Is it the color? Is it the shape? Can you find a cup here? No. That means the cup cannot bear analysis. When you're looking for all of the cup, you can't find an inherently existent cup. But what do you find at the end of your analysis? Emptiness. You find the emptiness of the cup. So the cup cannot bear analysis because you cannot find it when you're analyzing, looking for what it ultimately is. But when you're doing that analysis, you do come up with its emptiness. Okay? When we do ultimate analysis, we can't say, I'm going to find emptiness and set out to find it. Because we couldn't do that. We would have to see that whatever we're looking for doesn't exist. And then doesn't exist inherently. Doesn't exist inherently, and then the emptiness right. appears. But right. We can't say, I'm going to find emptiness yeah. in this computer. Emptiness is a non-affirming negative. So you have to negate something to find it. Yeah. It's not like, oh, let's go find emptiness. There it is. <laughs> okay. Non-affirming negative. Something became clear and that I've had this idea that there is this emptiness out there that we're trying to realize. And oh, it just dawned on me that it's not such a thing. Exactly. Because the emptiness is linked to a conventional object. Yes. And so in order to find emptiness, we have to start by analyzing an object of which there is an emptiness as is ultimate nature. Yes. <laughs> the light bulb went on. <laughs> That's why, remember I told you Lama Yeshi would tell us, emptiness isn't ten universes away, it's right here. Emptiness is in everything around us. It's the ultimate nature of everything around us. We're just totally oblivious. And instead, we think things inherently exist. So we don't just not see emptiness. We actively apprehend the opposite of emptiness. So when you said the non-dual experience can't be seen as non-dual by the mind that's having a non-dual experience but only by uh, another observer? Mm-hmm. Would that other observer be like my mind remembering it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or someone else with, um, with um, um, somebody who's yeah. omniscient knowing your mind? Yeah, but your mind remembering, mm-hmm. the, you know, okay. what happened. Yeah. yeah. Just two points. First, I think it's kind of even worse to think we don't even know conventionalities are conventionalities. Yeah. <laughs> I like to imagine that, but so that oh. that that when you really think about it, then you really realize like ignorance is thick. Mm. It's really thick. We don't perceive anything as it really exists. Yeah, that's why the lower schools, you know, 
that they, you know, they, they're much more comfortable. Oh, yes, you know, these things all exist out there as they appear. Yeah. I wanted to check the difference between mutually inclusive and one nature. Now, because when we talk in the debates, right, when you try and explain why something is mutually inclusive, then you'll say, right, if A exists, no, if, if it is A, it is B, if it is not A, it is not, not B, B, and so yeah. forth. But with one nature, if, if A exists, then B must exist. Yeah. But if it is A, it is not B. Right. So therefore, you could, so one nature would be three possibilities with mutually inclusive? Who knows? But <laughs> they're yeah. not synonymous. They're not synonymous. Okay. No. No. Two things that are mutually inclusive are impermanent and product. Okay? Now you can also say impermanent and product are one nature. And different isolates. isolates. You can also say that. Yeah. But, you know, the person and the emptiness of the person, they're one nature, but they are not mutually inclusive. Okay, they're contradictory. So you see, my learning some of these terms and stuff from the debate class is helpful. Yeah, it comes up. You know, if you if you can learn that, then when you study about emptiness, it's much easier to understand what they're talking about. So, go back. You may have to listen to this talk again. Yeah. But think about it and, you know, write out the things so that you get it clear in your mind what these different things mean. If you put the energy in, you will understand these things. Yeah? If you don't put the energy in and you just say, this is too difficult, so I'm not going to listen to the talk again. I'm not going to, you know, do any extra reading. I'm not going to do anything. Then for sure you won't understand, you know? But if you really want to understand and you put some energy into it, you know, look at the talk, look, you know, read some other things, then it'll become much clearer to you. It's like anything. Yeah, familiarity. Remember?